Welcome to The Human Context, Timeless Questions in the Present Tense, a production of the Denver Project for Humanistic Inquiry, the Public Humanities Center at MSU Denver. Our podcast features critical conversations with some of the greatest minds of our time, philosophers, historians, and thinkers who enrich our understanding of contemporary life by drawing upon the vast history of human thought and experience. For more information about our programs and events, please visit us at dphi.org. Thanks, and I hope you enjoy the program. Mark Twain purportedly once said that history doesn't repeat itself, but it sometimes rhymes. If so, what rhymes with black death? We begin today's episode with a metaphorical verse, a little historical couplet, as it were, involving two lines, one torn from the pages of history, one from the living present. Two lines which, at the very least, appear to rhyme. As an angry mob of protesters approached the city of London in June of 1381, A 14-year-old boy was rushed to safety at the top of the Tower of London. The protest would come to be known as the Peasants' Revolt, a pivotal event in the prehistory of the labor movement. And the boy, who anxiously peered down upon them from the protection of his tower? Well, he was none other than Richard II, King of England. Now, the peasants' rage was fueled in part by the imposition of a new poll tax intended to help fund the king's failing military campaign in France. But in order to fully understand the causes of the revolt, we have to turn back a page to events that began a generation before when Richard's father was still on the throne and the whole of Europe was engulfed by the Black Death, the most fatal pandemic in recorded human history. These were unimaginably horrifying times to live through, perhaps especially for a peasant. Within less than two years, an estimated 40% of England's workforce fell victim to the plague. But ironically, and as a direct result of this horrific loss, the peasant class was beginning to actually gain something of the upper hand. For land still needed to be plowed, goods still needed to be produced. So the peasants who survived were now able to demand more pay for their labor. Many left their lords in pursuit of better compensation. Some simply refused to work at all. Wealthy elites regularly ridiculed the peasants for their laziness, and they rather self-servingly extolled the virtues of an honest day's work. Landowners petitioned the king to legally compel workers back into the fields and workshops. A series of ordinances were passed that actually required people to work, and to do so for pre-pandemic wages. Legal mechanisms were put in place that required local officials to report laborers who refused to work. But these measures proved largely ineffective. Take, for example, the case of John Carter, a common laborer who was made to swear an oath before the constable in Lincolnshire, vowing to remain employed there through the fall. One week later, he'd vanished without a trace, presumably in search of greener, more lucrative pastures. A plowman in Suffolk was similarly forced to promise authorities that he would immediately return to work, but he eventually refused, presumably because he felt his labor was simply worth more than the wages offered. Now, let's fast forward to May 2020, the second line of our historical couplet. 
COVID-19 has just brought the U.S. economy to a near standstill. While many Americans are justifiably worried about the risks they face when returning to the workplace, some conservative politicians like Lindsey Graham and Mitch McConnell are now pushing to get them back on the job. Some business elites, like Elon Musk, are once again extolling the virtues of an honest day's labor, and some federal and state officials are trying to establish mechanisms for reporting workers who refuse to return to the workplace. Though the circumstances we face today are clearly quite different from those of the 14th century, the echoes are hard to ignore. So you might be wondering, whatever happened to the young King Richard and the peasant protesters? Well, the king did eventually descend from his tower to meet with the leaders of the movement, and he promised to honor their various demands, including the elimination of serfdom. But within a matter of days, all of the king's promises were broken, and the severed heads of the movement's leaders were publicly displayed on London Bridge. Let's just hope nothing rhymes with that. I'm your host, Adam Graves, and with me today to discuss the history of pandemics and their economic impacts, especially on the distribution of wealth, is Walter Scheidel, Dickinson Professor in the Humanities at Stanford University, where he's also Professor of Classics and History, and Catherine R. Kennedy and Daniel L. Grossman Fellow in Human Biology. Professor Scheidel is the author of many books, including The Great Leveler, Violence and the History of Inequality from the Stone Age to the 21st Century and his op-ed, Why the Wealthy Fear Pandemics, just recently appeared in the New York Times. We're also joined by Andrew Monson, Associate Professor and Chair of the Department of Classics at New York University. Professor Monson is the author of several books, including From the Ptolemies to the Romans, Political and Economic Change in Egypt. And uh, Walter, why don't we start with you then? I thought we could kind of begin at the beginning, as it were, uh, and talk about the origins of pandemic yeah. in, in antiquity. What are some of the earliest known examples? So in order to have a pandemic, you need an infectious disease that can hurt and kill people. And some of those diseases have been around for a long time. Malaria, tuberculosis, already adapted to our primate ancestors many millions of years ago. Uh, back in Africa, but other diseases, uh, as far as we can tell, are much more recent, and they're the ones who created the big waves of pandemics that we see in the early historical record. To just pick one example, plague, bubonic plague, the Asenia pestis, shows up for the first time maybe 5,000 years ago. We know this now, thanks to genetic studies. Seems to have undergone some mutation maybe 4,000 years ago that made it more virulent, made it more infectious, more lethal. So there are reasons to believe that there were already big plague pandemics back then, but nobody was around to write about them. So we can only reconstruct this mm. from uh, genetic evidence. Mm. Once we reach literate societies, we are on more solid ground. And I guess we'll talk about this later. The factors in play are pretty straightforward. There are more and more people over time with the spread of agriculture. More and more of these people end up being clumped together in urban settlements. And there's more and more long distance connectivity among those urban clusters in the form of trade or military expansion or other kinds of movements. And if you put those ingredients together, more people, higher concentration of people and greater connectivity, you have the perfect recipe for the spread of certain infections in the form of waves of pandemic. I mean, obviously, we have that that kind of genetic evidence, but in terms of historical evidence, 
the earliest known pandemics, they occur obviously after we already have the emergence of agriculture, the large, relatively large, you know, um, cities and things of that nature. Uh, that's certainly true. And the, the, the earliest ones we can see in, in the textual records, of course, uh, occur in, in literate um, societies. They're often very poorly defined. It's very difficult for us to retrospectively diagnose what exactly the pathogens were behind uh, of those pandemics. It takes till about 2000 years ago before we have a better idea of what the diseases in questions really were. Well, let's talk a little bit about that evidence. I think it's kind of interesting uh, as a non-historian, just speculating about what, what kind of evidence we'd have for pandemics in, in the ancient world. Andy, um, could you give us some examples of, of what the evidence looks like? Well, as Walter said, most of the evidence is rather vague. And so we don't have detailed accounts that allow us to diagnose what these pandemics were. But one of the places they turn up are, of course, in literary accounts, historical accounts, the Annals of Kings. And in ancient Greece, we have one of the first really detailed discussions of what a plague is by the historian Thucydides, who himself lived through a plague um, from 430 B.C. to about 427 B.C. and recovered from it. So he was in a good position to give us really detailed information about that. In that case, the plague reached Athens from ships from Egypt, and it spread in really very hospitable conditions for a disease because the Athenians were cramped up inside the city as the Peloponnesian War between Athens and Sparta began in 431 BC. In fact, the famous Athenian general Pericles himself died of the plague, which had a um, major effect on the development and outcome of that war. But besides literary accounts like that, and again, the account of Thucydides does describe the plague in some detail, but even those literary accounts don't give us any real quantitative focus. That is, we can't really see how the plague has affected people. Uh, but when we turn to Egypt, we get a really unique uh, set of documents starting in the Hellenistic period after the conquest of Egypt by Alexander the Great in 332 BC, Egypt was ruled by a Greek-speaking Macedonian dynasty down to the Roman conquest in 30 BC. And after that, Egypt became part of the Roman Empire. And what's remarkable about the Egyptian sources is that the very dry climate of Egypt has allowed for the preservation of very fragile documents written on papyrus. And papyrus is a plant native to Egypt that is cut into narrow strips and then laid out in overlapping layers that adhere together and provide for a really ideal writing surface. And these papyrus rolls are glued together to make uh, very long documents that can be used to write things like tax records, census documents. And Particularly for the early Roman period, we start to get very, very detailed information because the Roman census occurred every 14 years and it recorded the population. The census was used to collect uh, a poll tax on the inhabitants of Egypt. And what we can see is that when major epidemics break out, as in the Antonine Plague, which started under the Emperor uh, Antoninus in so 165 uh, CE, 
that we can really see the effect in the documents. I think Walter could say mm. more about these effects, and I know we would like to get to some of the economic effects, but just to mm -hmm. say one thing about the interest of, of the Egyptian sources, we can see that the population of Egypt by the second century AD was very, very large and quite densely populated. And so the plague, I think, struck a population that was um, quite dense. And we can see in the documents, including sale documents, price lists, things like that, that the plague really had an economic impact. And that becomes also um, an interesting source for the later Justinianic plague, too. So I think those 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 give us a, a more quantitative approach to the study of these pandemics. And mm -hmm. Walter's written quite a bit about this, so I could let him say something more if you want. It's probably worth pausing here just to lay out briefly in chronological order the main pandemics discussed by Andy and Walter. One of the earliest was the Plague of Athens, which ravaged the inhabitants of that city-state in the year 430 BCE, killing as many as 100,000 people. 600 years later, we have the Antonine Plague, mentioned by Andy. This is believed to have been an outbreak of smallpox, which reached the Roman Empire from the Near East in the second half of the second century of the Common Era, killing an estimated 5 million people. Now, the Justinian Plague struck Europe in the Near East in the middle of the 6th century and continued on and off for nearly 200 years, wiping out as many as 100 million, according to some scholars, making it one of the deadliest in human history. That plague is believed to have been caused by the bacterium Yersinia pestis, which was mentioned by Walter a moment ago. That's the same bacterium that was responsible for the Black Death in the 14th century, which may have killed as many as 200 million. Yeah, go ahead, Walter, if you'd like to chime in. Sure, yes. I think the Antonine Plague is actually quite interesting because there are records of large epidemics in India or in China already in antiquity, but it may well be that the Antonine Plague was the first true pandemic in that it covered enormous uh, territories straddling several continents in the late 2nd century AD, as Andy said, and we're also lucky in that one of the most famous physicians in antiquity, Galen, lived through that plague, hmm. and he left a number of descriptions. They are not as precise as we would like them to be today, but they help us identify, at least tentatively, this pandemic as a pandemic of smallpox. And if that was really the first major smallpox pandemic in Western Eurasian history, it would have killed a very large share of the population. So that's really the first mega event, if you will, that we know something about. And when you say mega event, I'm curious, are, you, are, are we able to correlate, I don't know, literary evidence from, say, as far, you know, as far east as China with evidence that we might find in Egypt or Athens? That's generally difficult to do to to synchronize um, mm -hmm. the data. I mean, there's no evidence, as far as I know, of a single pandemic that covers the full uh, spread of Eurasia or Afro-Eurasia. Mm -hmm. But uh, the Antonine Plague was certainly spread from the Middle East all the way into Western Europe. And that's probably possible only because the Roman Empire was quite integrated um, by, by historical standards. And there was a lot of movement, troops move, troop movements uh, in particular, that helped spread uh, the plague, just as, you know, in 1918, troop movements helped spread the Spanish flu. If I can just add one yeah. point to this. Um, in Egypt, what we see is that the amount of land that was cultivated was affected by this by this plague. So to add another interesting source besides census documents and tax records, 
we can see that the plague had an effect on the amount of land that was actually cultivated. And in Egypt, this was a particularly sensitive issue because once dikes were silted up uh, due to un, uh, unsuitable labor power, these fields were often very difficult to get back into cultivation later. So the economic effects, I think, of, hmm. of the plagues in Egypt are potentially uh, quite severe. That's interesting. That that resonates with a lot of the conversations that we're having today about getting the economy back online once uh, COVID-19 is, uh, we, once we've got our handle, uh, grip on that. Well, let's actually turn to that. I'm curious about the economic impacts of, of pandemics in the ancient and, and in the medieval world. Walter, how, could you talk a little bit about how they've impacted, or at least how we understand they've impacted, say, the distribution of material wealth in, you know, in ancient times and in the medieval world? Sure. Uh, by far, the best attested case, of course, is the Black Death in the late Middle Ages that shows up in the middle of the 14th century, kills maybe a third of all people in Europe, as far as we can tell, an even larger share in some places like England, as far as we can tell. And that has a massive impact on economic activity. So many people die that labor becomes scarce, there are labor shortages. And as a result, the surviving workers are able to charge much higher wages, not just nominal, but real wages, which employers have to pay in order to get work done, to have their fields cultivated, the harvest brought in, anything they want others to do. But at the same time, the amount of land was still the same as before the plague. There was no physical destruction. And so demand for land dropped because there were fewer people needing uh, food and demand for labor went up. And so ordinary people who had only their labor to sell were better off than before. And rich people who used to own most of the land were worse off than before. And so the poor were less poor and the rich were less rich for quite a number of generations. And as a result, mm -hmm. ordinary workers didn't just earn more money, they ate better, they could afford better clothing, better housing. And at the same time, the upper classes came under increasing pressure trying to maintain their lavish lifestyles. So that's a pretty good example of how a massive demographic shock could equalize up to a point the distribution of income and wealth. Mm -hmm. In those effects, you said they tapered off then after the plague? These effects persisted for as long as the plague was active. It wasn't a single event. The plague lingered for about 150 years in, in different parts of Europe. But once it abated uh, by the end of the 15th century, you see a massive demographic recovery, rapid population growth. And as the population recovered, real wages of workers went down, the value of land went up again, and after a few centuries, you were basically back to where you had started when the plague hit in terms of high levels of economic inequality. It's probably worth noting here that in his recent book, The Great Leveler, Walter argues that mass violence and catastrophes have been the only forces that have seriously decreased economic inequality throughout human history. These violent leveling forces include state collapse, revolutions, mass mobilization, warfare, and perhaps somewhat surprisingly, catastrophic plagues. Today, these forms of violence seem to be diminished. And while that's obviously a good thing, it also raises serious doubts about the prospects of achieving a more economically equitable future. That's interesting. Do you, do you see, if you look back further, I mean, this, this same kind of relationship between demand, also scarcity in the workforce. I mean, do, you, do we have earlier examples that, that we could point to where 
pandemic had a similar impact? We have a beautiful example of this. When the Black Death struck, the English nobility went to the king and said, King, you have to pass a law that forces our workers to work for the same low wages as before, because we don't want to pay more. And they failed. And we know that the Emperor Justinian, uh, during the first Great Plague pandemic, which starts in the middle of the 6th century AD, so that would be 700 years before the Black Death, does the exact same thing. And we have the ordinance that he passed saying workers shouldn't be greedy. They should work for the same wages as before. So you get the same governmental response in response to what was clearly a massive demographic shock on both occasions. And we know on both occasions the authorities failed because they couldn't just bend the laws of supply, uh, demand and supply uh, to their will. We know once again from Egypt, from late Byzantine, early Arab uh, Egypt, that the real wages of farm workers went up very considerably, 100, 150% in response to this demographic shock, just mm. as real wages of English harvest workers would go up in the 14th and 15th century. So there are very, very close analogies in that respect between those two pandemics. Wow, that's really interesting. And what about the analogy with the present? I mean, what can we learn about the future of COVID-19 by looking back at, at the past? I mean, do we expect, uh, I mean, it, it, it doesn't look clear to me that COVID is likely to have this great leveling effect on our society. If not, why not? What are some of the differences? Where do the analogies lie? Well, we are lucky in the sense that even the worst case scenario, COVID isn't going to kill nearly as many people as the great epidemics of the past did. Uh, mortality per capita will probably be two orders of magnitude lower than, let's say, during the Black Death. And that's obviously a very good thing. But it also means that there won't be a shortage of labor. Wages are not going to go up as a result. If anything, because of mass unemployment, wages are going to go down or stay lower than they were in recent years for quite some time. So very much is going to depend on the political response to this crisis. And here again, we see parallels to the past. I talked about the equalizing effect of the Black Death, but it wasn't true everywhere. It was true in Western Europe, where rich people had to cede some ground, they had to strike compromises, they had to bargain with workers to get things done. There were other parts of the world, Eastern Europe, Russia, Poland, or the Mamluks in Egypt, Systems with a very closely unified ruling class, very brutal ruling class that was able to crack down on the working population and essentially coerce people into accepting much more unfavorable working arrangements. So, of course, that's not going to happen today, but even today you're going to see differences in terms of policy responses. There will be countries that respond one way and countries that will respond differently. So if you live in continental Europe, the welfare state is going to be, if anything, shored up in response to that crisis. If you live in the US today, which is a highly polarized system, the outcome is far less certain. It really depends which constituencies, which power networks gain the upper hand. The result could be even greater inequality, even more polarization, if we double down on the status quo, we just provide short-term fixes for the current crisis, keeping businesses afloat with newly created money, keeping the unemployed 
afloat for a limited amount of time, and then we try to go back to business as usual. If that happens, we'll have more inequality even than before. If, on the other hand, either the crisis turns out to be unmanageable because the virus is intractable or quantitative easing doesn't work in the long term, or if more progressive elements um, uh, capture uh, political power, then you might have different outcomes. You might have an outcome more similar to what we saw in the 1930s during the Great Depression, where the New Deal appeared on the scene, all kinds of measures that people would have said are un-American, things that would happen in Europe, but not over here. And yet they became possible almost overnight because the crisis was so severe. So much is going to depend on how severe the crisis is going to be and what the political response is going to be. And right now, this is very much up in the air. It's interesting, reflecting back on the two anecdotes you gave where the um I suppose the landowners went to the king and instituted a policy that prevented us uh, raising wage wages. Um, I, I wonder if you could envision something like that happening now. In fact, in some ways, I kind of think that is probably what's happening now as, <laughs> as you know, as, as various industries are uh, lobbying in, in Washington. You hear a lot of talk today about the essential workers, and these essential workers are not generally, you know, hedge fund managers and, <laughs> and CEOs. They're the they're the people who are, you know, out there bagging groceries and, and risking their health to perform a kind of annual labor, I suppose, that that isn't often well compensated or ever really well compensated. It, it strikes me there's some analogy between the current situation, certainly, and the scarcity of, of workers in, uh, say, during the Black Death. It's not, of course, a result of mass death in our case, but rather uh, perhaps to some extent a result of the fears on the part of, of people who work in certain industries. I just read an article, for example, about the hotel industry and people who who do housekeeping and, and things like that, where you have to go in and you're cleaning, you know, toilets and sinks that guests have recently used. Well, some hotels at least are compensating those employees more handsomely than mm. uh, than they did in the past. But I think, unfortunately, I think, you know, your prediction sounds pretty right to me. <laughs> it's not likely that, you know, unless unless there is some kind of political change of some significant uh, sort that tilts us in the direction of the welfare states of Europe, that this pandemic is going to have an equalizing effect in the American economy. Yes, I think that's true. And I think we, we face a bit of a paradox. If you think back to the 2008 crisis, it didn't really tackle inequality. For a little while, the rich were less rich because their investments tanked, but they recovered uh, quite quickly because of various bailouts and, and monetary interventions and other people were stuck with underwater mortgages and debt and all kinds of problems, higher unemployment. And something similar might happen in the coming years. Then again, the 2008 crisis could have been mismanaged. It could have led, arguably, to another Great Depression and then very different outcomes would suddenly have been possible. And the same is true today. It's already a more serious crisis than the one from 12 years ago, and it might well spiral out of control. And if it does, then all bets are off. And then mm -hmm. there is much more space politically for measures that are now being decried or derided as being radical. All of a sudden, such measures might seem possible, feasible, maybe even desirable. But it's certainly too soon to tell. Mm -hmm. Can I just follow up with a question here also for Walter? Because he ma you made this really interesting comparison between the Mamluks where you have a regime where there's a high degree of solidarity among the 
landowning, or in this case, absentee landowning elite and ancient Roman landowners. Uh, so under Justinian, for example, the the solidarity among the landowners in Rome or the Byzantine Empire was presumably much less, and therefore the individual landowners would have had a strong incentive to pay those higher wages and not abide by the very regulations that they were arguing for that was in their collective interest. And I wonder, you know, because that is really interesting historical uh, parallel and comparison, what we could maybe take from that for the current debate about political polarization, because as, as, as you say, society is, is very polarized. But what polarization implies is that there's great solidarity between the two poles. And could we see that solidarity break down and that, um, for example, members of the Republican Party looking at measures that are obviously in the interest of their constituents and breaking ranks with what might be in the interest of the party as a whole? I think you make an excellent point in that regard. And in fact, what we see historically is that tightly unified ruling classes can block change even in the face of major shocks, whereas if they're less, uh, they show less solidarity, they can't quite pull it off. And here the United States is in a very interesting position because polarization ultimately reduces solidarity within the uh, elite layer of society, right? There are plutocratic conservative elites and they are more progressive. Um, elites and the kind of political polarization of ideological polarization that we see in the country, especially in elite circles, may well once again open up space for real reform. It's worth remembering that the R was very much an elite person, and yet he embraced uh, uh, what were by the standards of the time pretty radical change. Something like this could happen again in principle. The American ruling class is by no means unified. It is heavily polarized. And that, going by historical uh, precedent, should actually improve the chances of some kind of transformative change. You might say, though, that the bottom 99 percent is is also not unified in any way, right, that there's a lot of polarization among among laborers. I mean, we're uh, the labor movement in the United States has been in a free fall since, as I understand, at least the, the, the mid 70s. Um, and there just simply isn't organized labor in the same way that there was. Uh, that's that very, I actually wanted to. That's very true. I wanted to point uh, to something, though, that really makes the current situation very different from everything that has happened before, because there are now stabilizers in place that simply did not exist in the past. And the biggest of these stabilizers is modern science, right? In the past, when you had a pandemic, there was very little people could do about it. They could impose quarantines like we do right now, but we know that doesn't actually fix the problem, right? The problem can only be fixed via medical in, in, uh, intervention, treatment, drugs, vaccines, uh, ultimately some form of permanent containment or even eradication, as in the case of smallpox. And here we are arguably in a much better position than any earlier society because we sequenced the genome of the RNA of the virus within uh, weeks of its first appearance. There are more than a thousand drug trials currently underway. Science has the potential of restabilizing society, the economy, much more rapidly than it could have hoped to do in the past. And the sooner this kind of stabilization occurs, 
the more likely some version of the status quo is to survive. So perversely, science in a way is now an ally of the status quo. It saves people's lives, and that's wonderful, but it also, in the process, uh, tends to preserve existing conditions. And if existing mm -hmm. conditions are highly unequal, it will preserve those inequalities as well. I sometimes think that a lot of the, the, the confusion and, and anxiety that people are facing uh, across the globe has something to do with the fact that science isn't moving as quickly as we seem to expect it <laughs> nowadays. That is to say, you know, at least for the, for the, the short term, we're in the same position vis-a-vis -vis, uh, COVID-19 as, as people were in 1918 vis-a-vis -vis the Spanish flu. We just don't have effective medical treatment. And, you know, in historical terms, this is a little a flash in the pan because presumably six to, to, to 18 months from now, we'll have we'll have some kind of effective treatment. Um, but it's interesting because we're, we're living through this this moment that feels quite well. It feels long. And uh, to the extent that we're kind of we're, we're vulnerable and, and to that extent, it also feels as if the systems upon which, well, let's just say the status quo is also vulnerable, but I think you're right. I think we'll, we'll have a medical treatment and, and this, the, this pandemic will not have the kind of impact that a pandemic would have had in the you know, 16th, 17th century. <laughs> That's certainly true. Let me give you a rather strained analogy. Uh, back in the Middle Ages, when the Black Death struck, the church, which had been hegemonic, the Catholic church for hundreds of years, was completely helpless, right? It couldn't do anything about it. And people would realize this at some point and say, well, why are these people so rich and powerful, right? Why do we need all these uh, fat priests? Uh, can't we do things differently? And you get the Renaissance, you get the Reformation. There is no simple connection. But, you know, the, the Black Death certainly had some impact on these reform movements. Now, if science today failed to deliver people would be very surprised and very disappointed. It's unlikely to happen. It wouldn't discredit science overall, but would certainly shake people's confidence in that has built up our confidence in science, which in a way has almost replaced traditional confidence in, in, in traditional religion. For instance, I just looked up an opinion poll the other day, the most trusted occupation in the U.S. are scientists. Uh, nobody trusts their own elected politicians, but everybody trusts scientists. So the pressure is definitely on uh, with respect to science. If science delivers, this trust will be uh, reconfirmed and amplified. If science fails, at least in the short term, uh, anxieties are going to rise quite a bit. Well, I think we should trust historians. <laughs> I hope they were number two on that list. Um, well, thank you, guys. I think this has been a really fascinating conversation. Uh, Walter Scheidel, Andrew Monson, I really appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's it for this episode of The Human Context. I'd like to thank Gabriel Grinsteiner, Hannah Warner, our editor, Kelsey Percival, MSU Denver, and especially you, our listeners. If you enjoyed today's program, please subscribe. And for more information about our programs and events, please visit us at dphi.org. Dot O-R-G.